Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace and RX Bar. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host and co-pilot, Jason Snell. Hello. Hello, Stephen. How are you? I, I'm good. We should just get we should just clear the decks with this. That today is not the first man review episode because nobody's seen it because it comes out next weekend, not this weekend, yeah. and so nobody has seen it yet. Like regular people, we we got excited. Um, I don't know how calendars work, and so we will. Everybody should go see it if you like space, and if you don't like space, why are you listening to this? <laughs> you hate listening to Liftoff? What's happening? Uh, go see it. Everybody seems to say that it's really good, and we're going to go see it, and we'll talk about it in a couple of episodes, because we're ne- our, our next episode is going to be a special episode, so we'll talk about it in a couple episodes. you got time to see it. It comes out next weekend, but uh, everybody go see it, and then we'll meet back here and talk about it. Sounds good. Yeah, next week we're going to be talking about Apollo 7. Yeah. Looking, looking forward to getting that out. Uh, so, Jason... Uh, we're recording this a day early, so today is Monday, October 8th. Last night, SpaceX had a launch from Vandenberg. It was the first yep. time that they landed the uh, first stage back on land on the West Coast. Previous right. Vandenberg launches, they've had to use the drone ships out in the sea. This time, uh, the LZ-4 was ready. This landing zone is basically right next door to the launch. It's like 1,400 feet away, so it's very yeah. close to the launch pad. I did have one of those pre-launch jitters of like, what if they landed on the launch pad? Like, what if they just miss it by fourteen hundred feet? But they've uh, they successfully did it. Their their land landings have been just bulletproof. I don't think they've had any issues, right? I don't think they've they've toppled a single rocket on land, which is well. I think turns out impressive. land doesn't move like yeah. the drone ships do, and it doesn't tilt like the drone ships do. So uh, that's all that's all good. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. uh, it worked. Uh, this was a. Uh, a twilight launch it was you know we've already seen some of these launches uh get noticed in la because um los angeles is not too far away from santa barbara vandenberg's basically in santa barbara just up the coast from la and uh but this is a twilight this is a sunset just after sunset launch so it was perfectly timed for everybody in southern california to watch this and they did and one of the amazing things about that is, if you think about it, at, uh, in twilight, if you go high enough up, the sun is still up, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, that that there's the angle, and the the, the sunlight kind of keeps going up, 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 up. And so, uh, as it got higher up, it got kind of into visible light. So there's the, then there's this big visible cloud of all of the all of the stuff that's happening actually right at at main engine cutoff and then separation and then the boost back burn happens on the first stage and the and the second stage lights up and there's this big kind of rainbowy cloud uh, and there's some great time lapse. We'll put in a Vimeo. There's this time lapse from uh, Santa Monica, so north part of uh, L.A. basically. Um, that shows that whole thing and it's pretty spectacular and then you can actually see from the vantage point in santa monica you can actually see the boost back burns and stuff um and on spacex's uh video of it they've got some really nice shots where you can actually see like the pulses of the um of basically the attitude control coming down the pulses to just make sure that they're exactly aligned right to come back to the landing site and they're all visible it's pretty amazing stuff um but here's the thing that I hadn't really thought of. I, okay, that's not true. I had thought about it that, like, mused, like, well, you know, one of these days, space is really high up there, right? You can see space stuff from far away. 
one of these days when there's a SpaceX launch, I ought to try to go outside and look for it mm-hmm. because we're you know 400 miles up the coast from Santa Barbara, but we're you know we're relatively close, and I know that depending on um, on the launch angles and things like that, that on the East Coast, people way up and down the East Coast can see space launches. So uh, I've always meant to do that, but I never really thought about it. And I knew that this launch was happening, but that's as far as it went. So we took the we had dinner uh, last night, and then we uh, we dog hadn't been walked, so we took the dog out for a walk in the neighborhood and decided to walk a little bit further than usual, um, just kind of like by chance. And turned a corner, and I looked. I just happened to look to the south, and I was like. And I saw this thing in the sky, and I was like, wow, check that out. And Lauren said, what's that? And I said, oh, that's the SpaceX launch. That's what that is. (laughs) And it was, and and so it was completely by chance. But I realized in that moment, I was like, wait a second. It's Sunday night. That's the SpaceX launch, and we can see it. And it was a big, it was that big cloud that was left over from everything that happened in those like five seconds where they do uh, 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 main engine cutoff, separation, um, uh, second stage lights up. First stage has the boost back burn. That leaves this big kind of puffy cloud, yeah. kind of rainbow week puffy cloud. And then off, you know, off uh, uh, above is another bright spot with with uh, a streamer basically coming down from it, uh, which was the second stage going to orbit. And it was not on the horizon either. We we were walking down a street where there were. Um, there were houses on the other side of the street to the south, two-story houses, in fact, and above them, or just to the side, sort of like at the level of the rooftop of the two-story house that was right across the street, it was there. So it was not um, not, not even that low in the sky to see this launch from 400 miles away. And uh, at that point, I got out my iPhone and opened up the SpaceX YouTube stream. Uh, just to make sure, like, are we are we seeing something else? I, and I was think, sitting there thinking, I've seen the photos from L.A. This has got to be, uh, like, of previous SpaceX launches, this has got to be what it is. This is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took a couple pictures, posted them on Twitter, because as you do. But we, um, so I get out the SpaceX thing, and we stand in the basically the driveway of my kids' old elementary school, where, where we had, uh, it was sort of like further across the street, so I could get a clearer view of it. And we just stood there and watched it, uh, because it was spectacular. And they were saying, oh, you know, uh, second stage cut up, cut off. Seco is going to come up in forty seconds. And I said to Lauren, "Well, let's let's sit here and watch because th- they're going to cut off the second stage, and we should be able to see that." And you know, there's a, a streaming delay a little bit when you do a live stream. It's not it's not exactly live, right? And so they get to like thirty seconds to Seco, and I'm like, "All right." And then they and then um, and I'm counting on down, and I say, "Well, now it's twenty. And I said, now it's 10. And the moment I said, now it's 10, the little light at the end of the streamer goes, boop, and it's gone. Pretty wild. All all right. (laughs) There there it was. They just cut off the second engine. So um, that's awesome. Uh, Other than going to the shuttle launch, I've never seen another space launch with my own eyes. And uh, we just had to walk the dog. That's it. It was completely by chance. And I wouldn't have even, I mean, again... Uh, and all the, I, I would, this would have been the one to convince me that I needed to do it because uh, my Twitter feed filled up with all sorts of things like there's somebody north of me in Napa who saw it. There's a bunch of people in San Francisco who are tweeting about it. So it was definitely very visible. But what it means to me is that I will now be paying attention to SpaceX launches 
from Vandenberg uh, just on the off chance that I can I can catch a glimpse because it was I mean it was spectacular it was it was a, an incredibly unusual phenomenon I I guess I should say uh, we often have really foggy evenings like mm-hmm. you don't you don't actually get good sunsets right uh, in in a this part of, of the world a lot of Vandenberg launches you just see. Uh, darkness turned to light and then back to darkness as the rocket yeah. leaves there's, right? like there, there's no visibility glow yeah. and, and a noise and, and you're like i guess the rocket took off something mm. happened <laughs> yeah yeah and, and the, yeah the thick by the coast there's thick fog a lot of the time and uh last night there was also no fog it was perfectly clear and so that's the other part of this too so that there's there's a lot of luck involved we get a lot of warm clear weather um, in mid October, late October, this is the time of year where we, uh, for people who don't live in California, some of our, uh, in the Bay Area at least, some of our hottest days are in October, which is super weird. But it, it's just that's we get this weather pattern where the winds shift and you get clear evenings and warm days and cool nights, and that that we ha- are in one of those patterns right now. And so it was perfect timing for this launch too. But anyway, it was great. If you live in California and there's a SpaceX launch, uh, go outside and look in the general direction of Santa Barbara and you can be far away and still uh, get a chance to have a, a show like this. So I just, uh, it was pretty cool. Pretty pretty great to see and great for SpaceX that they've progressed on their um, on their West Coast launches, which tend to be polar orbits, as we've talked about, because there's uh, no land south of Santa Barbara until Antarctica. So they're great for polar orbit launches. But now they've managed to do their uh, their same trick, like they've done at uh, uh, Cape Canaveral for a while, where they're like launching from Kennedy Space Center and then landing at the Cape Canaveral Marine Base or something like that. It's like not it's it's further south than right next door, but still, it's a neat trick to be able to just land it without even a drone ship. Mm-hmm. This is the the first time that the Block Five has landed back on land. This rocket was reused, though it it flew over the summer. It may have been the first Block Five launch. Don't quote me, but I think it was. Hmm. Uh, and yeah. so this was basically like a three month turnaround. So it's a, it's a quick turnaround. That that was part of the Block Five design goals, right? That they want to get down to like a twenty four hour turnaround time. The Block Five is built to make that easier. And of course, uh, they mentioned on the live stream is that. Landing on land means that it, you can start that sort of refurbishment process faster because you don't have to deal with waiting for the drone ship to come back and then transporting it from the port uh, back to the facility. Right. You're not dealing with salt water and other things. It's just uh, you go and basically tip it over on a trailer and, and pull it back in <laughs> into the. It's just like, you just like hook yeah. up a pickup truck to it. I think. And yeah. Just pull a lot it in. of the drone. A lot of the drone ship stuff is required because of the velocity of the of the. Uh, you know, if they if they need to push something farther, uh, they can't get back to base. Right. So some of it is some of it they have to use a drone ship. But if right. they can avoid it, they would rather avoid it. And in this mm-hmm. case, that's that's what they got to do. Yeah. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. And I got a little uh, yeah surprise space. So I lo- I, I was going to send you a message with a picture in it, and you had just sent me a message in our little uh, uh, Slack chat saying, "Hey, they landed." And I was, <laughs> my response was like, "Dude, I saw yeah, it. Here's pictures. Really cool. It's amazing. So yeah, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I hope that you get some more clear nights to, to see those things. I hope pretty, so. Pretty I, awesome. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be paying attention. If they did a, if they did an early morning launch, you know, I get up for that too. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah. You cool. just, need, yeah, just take out a, you take out a folding chair on the roof and you'll be set. That's a great idea. Yeah. That'll be. I got a tree. I got a redwood tree in my backyard. It's going to block the view. I'm going to have to go over to the school parking lot and sit over there. But that, that that's a good place. Yeah. 
All right. So last week uh, or last episode, we spoke about mascot, which may be the most uh, adorable acronym in uh, in space exploration history. Uh, so so mascot has <laughs> in the times of our last episode has lived its life. What, what happened here? Yeah. Yeah. Mascot. Hooray for mascot and RIP mascot. So the Hayabusa 2 probe that is around the Ryugu asteroid, and we talked about how it dropped its two little landers, 1A and 1B. But there are more landers, right? There's lander 2, rover 2, and then there's also mascot. So, and we said mascot will be next, and then then, uh, rover 2 will be deployed. So mascot uh, was dropped down, and there's a nice, there's like a shot of mascot from... Uh, from uh, Hayabusa 2, which is adorable. I love it when space probes take pictures of other space probes. It's awesome. Um, it went down to the surface. Like the others, it's kind of movement by pogo because wheels, if you spun a wheel, it would immediately fling the spacecraft off the asteroid. So they had these little like uh, bouncy like pogo stick kind of things where they go boop and they take a little hop and they go somewhere else. That's how they move around. Um, so mascot went down to the surface of Ryugu. It took pictures and did other measurements. It lasted about 16 hours because it was it's battery operated. It, I guess the before it releases it, Hayabusa two pulls out the little plastic tab or something that you get. When, you, no, yeah, no, uh, no. <laughs> I was just gonna let you go with it. <laughs> I don't know how it does that, but you know, you pull out and it's like, all right, you got your little battery. Go, go, mascot. Good luck. Um, mascot was built by the German Aerospace Center. It weighed about 10 kilograms, so it's a, it's a little guy. Really little guy hopping around with its camera, spectrometer, magnetometer, radiometer. All that data is coming back, uh, or or has come back and is being processed and all of that. And uh, so yeah, so Hayabusa two is going to get down to Ryugu next year. I believe there's that second lander that'll get deployed. They're going to grab a sample of the space rock with the main spacecraft, and then there's a sample return plan there where they will bring it back to Earth. And in a couple of years. Um, they should get a uh, a sample returned to Earth from Ryugu. Exciting stuff. It, it's been, yeah. uh, you know, so much of this mission has been really quick, and then was, there's kind of a delay until the sort of the, the next phase of it. But uh, really, really exciting stuff, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, little probe, asteroid, four landers. It's, there's a lot going on here. It's pretty awesome. And this is another uh, international collaboration, right, where the Germans built mascot, and it's on the Japanese probe, and everybody's working together to to do uh, asteroid science. And it's funny, the pictures of the asteroid surface, it's just like, you know, a rocky terrain. It, it, it doesn't look like it's a strange alien landscape. It's rocks. It's, it's, it's a rocky landscape because it's an asteroid. It's like just a big rock. So talking about spacecraft, we're going to jump back in time a little bit and talk about Mm. Cassini. We remember Cassini. It Uh. had its final orbit and then plunge into Saturn's atmosphere last year. But as we talked about then, it it takes a... it's going to take a while to sort of unfold and, and sort of deal with all the data that we got back from those uh, those final you know uh, days and hours and moments of the mission. And a lot of that is coming out now. The journal Science uh, published a big uh, body of work about its uh, very few final orbits. And some interesting stuff I wanted to talk about. Uh, the, the, I think the most surprising thing is that from the innermost ring, which is the D ring around Saturn, very... Uh, uh, very close, very uh, very thin ring. This, this dropping ten tons of material per second down in, into Saturn's atmosphere. And so you may think, well, that's probably water ice, right? Like it, we know a lot of those rings are water ice and dust. Turns out that <clears throat> turns out that this is things like methane and carbon 
and hydrogen. So you have you have these uh, this organic material sort of raining down on Saturn from this innermost ring, and this raises a lot of questions. Like, where is this material coming from? Is it being replenished somehow, or eventually the D ring is going to just disappear as all this material gets pulled down into the planet? Uh, lots of questions being raised by this. Um, science also talked about the the radiation belt. Uh, sort of coming around Saturn. So we talk a lot about this at Jupiter, right? That a lot of these moons and talking about Juno having to be hardened against the radiation there. Uh, it's a similar deal at Saturn, but if you look at some of these visualizations of the uh, the radiation belt, it has big gaps in it as it passes through the rings. And so Cassini was able to uh, measure that as it as it made these tighter and tighter orbits around Saturn coming in and out of the of these radiation belts something that I think had been hypothesized before but sort of now nailed down with uh, Cassini information uh, something in reading this that sort of uh, surprised me um, is that we don't actually know what a day is on Saturn we don't know much about Saturn's core we don't know how fast it rotates uh, there is some evidence talking about the magnetic axis being aligned with the spin, but there's a lot of unknown still about this planet that we spent, you know, Cassini spent a long time there in that system, but there's still some really like basic questions about how Saturn, the planet is comprised and, and how it interacts. It's interesting. Yeah, when you have a big planet like that, it is, and we've found this with Jupiter and Saturn, it's very hard to figure out some of the things about it. Like, well, plus there's the whole idea of like, what is a day? It's like, well, how do you define that? Is it is it the amount of time it takes for the cloud tops to spin? Is it is the core? What you know? What is it for a gas giant? It's 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 tricky, tricky. And we there's so much more. This is something I love. Whenever we talk about a a new planetary probe, um, there are it's very clear from the instruments that are put on new planetary probes. Like there's so much we don't know about these mm-hmm. planets. Like we, th- we know so much more than we used to, but there's so much we don't know that, that another mission with another set of instruments could help solve. Maybe we just need to spend some more time exploring our solar system. What a crazy Maybe, idea. Yeah. I, I, some more planetary uh, missions might be yeah. a good idea. Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I think so too. It's a good idea. Somebody we should tell somebody. Yeah. I'll just, uh, we'll just tweet at NASA. I think that's all it yeah. takes. Yeah. More planets, please. <laughs> uh, they're busy talking about commercial crew, so I feel like we. Yeah, I feel like commercial crew's been right around the corner the whole time we've made this show, but there is uh, a blog post up on the commercial crew site. Wait, let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. We're totally going to launch commercial crew in 2018 on schedule, and there have been no delays. Well, uh. So we have uh, both the Boeing uh, and the SpaceX programs, and the the dates currently now are a, a Boeing orbital uncrewed flight test in March 2019. That would be aboard the Atlas V rocket, by the way. And the Boeing capsule can be fitted to like three different rockets, but they're going to use the Atlas V for this. Uh, that would be followed up by a crewed flight test of the Boeing Starliner in August of 2019. And NASA says in this post that uh, basically if issues come up in the uncrewed test, the crewed test will slide. I mean, again, they're just yeah, sort of building this in. Uh, yeah. It's like, oh, we found a bunch of issues. We're still going to do it. That would be the, the wrong approach. Uh, SpaceX is a little bit ahead of Boeing. It seems like uh, SpaceX Demo 1 uncrewed 
uh, will be in January of 2019 on a Falcon 9 Block 5. Mm-hmm. And then the crewed mission would follow in June of next year. So uh, you're talking about January and March and then June and August for uh, uncrewed and crewed flights. This feels real this feels real to me though. I feel like they are they are they could still slip, but I feel like the slippage is getting less and less because we are actually getting closer and closer to the point where I feel fairly confident now that barring any, you know, double, you know, double catastrophic mishaps, I feel like 2019 is we can like put the pin in it that 2019 is the year that American astronauts launch from American hmm. soil again like this this it feels like 2019 is going to be when it happens and with any luck summer 2019 yeah i mean you you could see with january and march if those dates hold unless something really catastrophic happens in those uncrewed tests that even if the crew test slip you know three four five months that's still within 2019 so yeah. Especially with January and March being, I mean, we're we're into October. That's pretty close. Yeah, uh, I yeah. do feel like they ha- they're saying that with some certainty. So yeah, I SpaceX think SpaceX really wanted it to be 2018, though, right? Oh, yeah. you, you can tell because they were like mm, late 2018, and then they're like December 2018. <laughs> you could tell that they're like we really want to, and then finally it's it, it's like no, it's just we'll say January 2019. <laughs> we're like they they uh, they. They did really want to try to hold it in this year, but that is not far away. January, you're right, not far away at all. So it feels like we're getting close to uh, to doing that, and uh, it's exciting because that is yeah. the return to spaceflight from uh, from the U.S., uh, which we've been waiting for since that shuttle mission uh, many years ago. Now, many mm-hmm. years ago, <laughs> many many years. Yeah, it, it's a big deal, and it, it does feel like you know, even if. Uh, even with SLS and Orion, all that is sort of a couple years past this. Like for a while, I sort of feared that commercial crew is going to miss its window and like Orion would be ready and commercial crew kind of would be like a program with no place to go. But I think, I think two things, a, the SLS is extreme overkill to go to the international space station and way more expensive to fly than the Atlas five or the Falcon nine block five. So commercial crew has a, an advantage price wise, but, uh, also, just like capacity-wise, that you don't need the SLS uh, to go to low Earth orbit. That that rocket is designed to go further. And so yeah. I think there's still room for as long as the space station is what it is today, there's still room for these programs. And so even if they totally. have a, a five, six, seven, eight-year shelf life, I still, think, I still think it's worth it. What Also, what if there were an important um, orbiting space instrument that had uh, that it was in need of repair in, lo- in low Earth orbit, right? Like, now that we don't have the space shuttle anymore, how would we fix such a thing were it to exist? You'd probably need the capacity to send a crew up into space and then let them also get out and uh, fix things. Unfortunately, that that's ridiculous. That would never happen. Mm-hmm. That's foreshadowing for later. <laughs> uh, but first, I'm going to tell you about our first sponsor. How's okay. that? Good idea. Good idea. Is it space related? Well, they have space in their name. Oh, good. That's my favorite sponsor for this podcast. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea. You can get a unique domain name, use award-winning templates, and have access to 24-7 customer support if you need any help. So let's talk about your next idea. Maybe you want to create an online store, or maybe you want to build a portfolio to show off your work, or maybe you just want to write a blog. 
Well, Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. In fact, you can mix and match these things. If you want a blog and a store, you can do both on a single website. There's nothing to install. There's no software patches to worry about. No server upgrades are needed. Squarespace just has all of that covered. Like I said, you can quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and they have award-winning 24-7 customer support. And all those award-winning templates are beautifully designed, so you don't have to worry about going in and tinkering with stuff. You can if you want to. It's all there, but this stuff looks great right out of the box. I've used Squarespace for a couple of client, like freelance projects, including a pretty small nonprofit. They're doing some work in town, and they didn't even have a website. They just had brochures they were handing out. I was like, we got to fix this. So I set them, set them up with a really straightforward Squarespace site. Uh, it's basically kind of a content site. You can see the work they do, a couple of image galleries, uh, contact forms so that someone can get in touch if they want to get involved. It's all really easy, and the best part is they can manage it themselves because Squarespace platform makes it easy to do so. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you, dear listener, can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for liftoff. Once again, that's squarespace.com liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, it's time. Are you ready? <laughs> time for the SLS segment, Space Launch System segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. So we're going to start, well, actually, we're going to start and end with Orion. So okay. the, the capsule sure. that sits top SLS, I feel like it fits in the SLS segment, right? It's part of the uh, Yeah, sure, totally. Thing. You, can't, you can't have Orion without SLS. That's that's true. You just have a a paperweight, really. Yeah, <laughs> very, for lots of pa- lots of paper. <laughs> very yeah. expensive paperweight. People can climb in and say we're holding down the paper. <laughs> so the service module for Orion for EM one is is about ready to go. So Orion bars a lot from Apollo. We have a command module and you have a service module. They work together. Uh, in this case, the service module is being supplied by ESA. And they plan on shipping the module for EM-1 at the end of this month. So right now it's in Europe. It's going to come over to Kennedy Space Center where it'll be mated to its Orion module. Remember, this Orion is – and this flight is uncrewed. So this service module is a little bit different than what we'll see with EM-2 and moving forward. Um, But it is uh, ready to go for this this uncrewed uh, test flight. So they'll, they'll pair them. Lots of system integration and testing and all that stuff. Um, the Orion capsule, by the way, for EM-1 is also pretty much like it's very close to being completed. Uh, and they, from what I've been reading, the Orion and its service module will be ready in plenty of time for the launch in June 2020. So it seems like that date is really about the rocket and the launch platform and all that stuff at this point. Uh, so this is good news. This is a big milestone. Uh, in fact, they're already working on the EM2 service module again, rated for having humans uh, on the on the on the vehicle. So it's slightly revised, um, and Airbus is actually already working on uh, EM3 components as well. And a fourth service module is being considered in like budgetary stuff right now. But I, I would I would assume we'll have mm. a fourth at some point. Uh, so this part of the SLS Orion program seems to be humming along at least right now. 
Yeah, it's a good. Uh, it's a good start. This is again, dates are getting closer. Uh, maybe more precise for especially now that they've decided that they're doing this first mission as the uncrewed mission um, in 2020. It is, you know, maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't, but it's a good, it's a good sign that we're getting as this decade comes to a close. You know, thinking back to that shuttle launch in 2011, that uh, that we seem to finally be getting close to having all of these things, the commercial crew and uh, Orion, actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, part of the conversation right now too is uh, Lockheed is actually looking at ways to equip Orion to do additional things. And so uh, the current conversation is in uh, conjunction with nano racks, who we've talked about before, um, basically using like the trunk of Orion, so kind of uh, behind the capsule while it's in flight, to launch things like CubeSats. So things that could be uh, open to the vacuum of space, things that could be um, uh, you know, out of the way of the crew and what they have to have inside the capsule uh, to, uh, to do some stuff, which I think is, yeah. is pretty interesting. Yeah, and the calculation about this is fun because you know you have to uh, you have to have the thrust to carry things up to space, right? But there's also a weight limit in returning things on Orion because of the reentry systems, and that is a smaller. I mean, there's com- combustible stuff or there's ex- expendable stuff, um, so there's a smaller weight limit returning than there is going up. Uh, but you solve that by having things you deploy and you leave behind. So. Um, the uh, and and so you've got your limits of what you can fit <clears throat> inside the capsule, but um, but then beyond that, like they can put cubesats and other stuff and deploy them um, from outside the capsule, and then that uh, doesn't put them over the limit of like basically the weights the parachutes can take when they come back uh, to re-enter. So uh, there's an opportunity here for other. Uh, other things like going around the moon or in cislunar space, the idea that you could uh, release CubeSats or other things mm-hmm. and uh, and do interesting science uh, in places that you know CubeSats have not had a chance to go before. Yeah, when I was in Huntsville for the State of NASA event earlier this year, one of the uh, the areas we saw and the people we got to meet with were working on CubeSat launches for EM One. So the the stage adapter uh, for the EM1 SLS will carry, I forget how many, uh, like a dozen or so CubeSats. We actually saw the adapter ring, like the actual flight hardware. I got a, I got to walk out uh, on a gantry over it and take a picture, and the guy told me not to drop my phone into it, uh, which <laughs> I, I, I appreciated his concern. He's like, what are all these kids doing here? But uh, So this is something that the SLS program is already doing. Like you said, you've got to get them up there, but you don't have to bring them back. And something like uh, the stage adapter or the space behind the Orion capsule, like it's already open to the vacuum of space. And so as far as launching them, uh, actually for the stage adapter on SLS, it's a very simple mechanism. Uh, They showed us how it worked. Basically, the CubeSat slots in this little uh, little sort of tray, and then they put the lip down and they sort of uh, these like little actuators kind of just push it out into space so it's not a complex mechanism it seems like and it does open the door for some commercial partnerships um on a nasa mission but you know that's shuttle did that space station does that uh this feels like something that um could could open the door for like you said 
like cislunar CubeSats and stuff, stuff that we haven't really seen before. Uh, and and uh, just like CubeSats have done in low Earth orbit, open the door to uh, research, to students, to universities, to startup companies, to do things uh, in space that, you know, the bar has been so high for so long. CubeSats are starting to change that equation for a lot of people. And so I'm all for spraying that technology uh, where it makes sense. Yeah, little satellites, hitch a ride, uh, better access to space. Uh, NanoRacks, I first heard about NanoRacks because one of the things that they did was um, have iPhones on shuttle missions. The idea that on the, on the sort of last couple of shuttle missions, they had science where they basically could put like uh, sensors attached to like an iPhone. And that was how they did their science. Um, in these little tiny equipment racks inside the shuttle. So all of this kind of small-scale stuff where you can hitch a ride on a bigger thing, but once you've got access to space, you can do lots of interesting things. And, of course, our technology has gotten way better in terms of having very small packages that are very capable. So it's pretty cool stuff. Uh, I look at This will be another fun thing about, you know, the Orion. You think about this billions of dollars on SLS, but... Um, the the story won't just be the big mission. It'll be all these little kind of ancillary things that are getting stuffed into it to give it more value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thumbs up for me, for sure. All right, we have one more sponsor this week. Uh, then we're going to talk about a couple more things. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by RX Bar. RX Bar are whole food protein bars with simple, real ingredients. They believe in being totally transparent. That's where all the core ingredients are listed right on the front of the packet. None of that small text with words you can't pronounce. That's all really straightforward. Mm-hmm. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there's definitely an RX bar for you. They come in 14 flavors. A couple of my favorites I love. Just the straight peanut butter. Just plain mm-hmm. old peanut butter. I'm a big fan. Uh, peanut butter and berries. And then uh, I know my kids are fans of the chocolate sea salt. So a little sweet, a little salty together. Oh, interesting. Peanut butter chocolate is awesome too, by the way. But I am mm-hmm. also a pro peanut butter uh, person. But yes. They're all, the, the, uh, the coconut chocolate is good. The, uh, the chocolate chip is good. Basically, give me chocolate, give me peanut butter. Yeah. Or give me both. I, I'm I'm gonna be a happy person, and they're, and and it's and they're they're good and and like you said, it's on the front of the package. It says here's what's in this, and that's it. That's basically the whole thing. They don't do they don't have like really weird ingredients. Yeah, you you, you know what you're eating. That's important to a lot of people. RX Bar also has a kids line, so it's the same whole food ingredients. RX Bar just smaller with kid friendly flavors. Uh, they're also a little softer, kind of finer uh, chopped nuts, easier to eat. The kids bars come in six flavors, things like chocolate chip, PB&J, which uh, I think I like just as much as my kids did, double chocolate chip, and peanut butter chocolate. Both adult and kids bars are gluten, soy, and dairy-free, with none of that bad stuff like artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or fillers. They're perfect for parents for breakfast or on the go, a snack at the office, that sort of thing. And the kids' bars are great to drop into the lunchbox on the way out the door. Uh, my family received a bunch of these different flavors. We all kind of tried them out, had a sampling. And like I said, the kids' PB&J was a big, big hit. So RX Bar is offering an exclusive pack of six adult bars and four kids' bars for the whole family to enjoy. For 25% off your first order, go to rxbar.com liftoff and enter the promo code LIFTOFF at checkout. That's rxbar.com slash liftoff, and enter the promo code LIFTOFF at checkout. Our thanks to RxBar for their support of this show 
and Relay FM. All right, we have uh, a sort of a topic that got sprung on us the last minute, mm. uh, and the topic is Hubble trouble. Hubble trouble. Hubble mm-hmm. Space Telescope. It's been up there a long time. It's been serviced by the space shuttle a bunch of times, but we don't have a space shuttle anymore. And that led to everybody thinking, well, mm, now that that last fix was the last fix that can be done, and hopefully it will still work for a while. But Hubble is having some serious trouble, uh, Hubble trouble right now, because uh, it's in safe mode, which you would think is like a good thing, but it's like... um, as we know from covering other other space missions, safe mode is basically something bad happened. And the next thing that happens is the computers basically kind of like curl up in a little ball and not do anything and let wait for the humans to tell them what to do to try and fix the problem. Because there is a gyroscope and the gyroscopes fail after a while and this gyroscope failed. People had been expecting it. Uh, so they predicted that this failure would happen. And here it is. It has uh, it has failed. Yeah, it's so it's in safe mode, and the team is working to kind of figure out where to go from here. So this is very much like a breaking story as we record this. So uh, if you listen to this in a few days, there's probably new news going mm. on. Uh, hopefully, good news. Um, it does seem like they could extend the life of the telescope, even going down to one gyroscope. <laughs> yeah, so Hubble's, Hubble's got six gyroscopes. Yeah. They replaced them all in 2009 in that last service mission. Um, it needs three to work in its optimal configuration. Right now, there are only two that they say are good, although they had one that, that had been problematic and they shut it down. And there there is some investigation of the idea that they may spin it back up and see if they can get it, they can work through its issues and use it as the third gyroscope. But the fallback is this one gyro setting, which is, you know, it, it's less optimal but w- rather than going from three to two, they go from three to one and they keep the other one as a backup. And that means that they can use that one gyroscope until it dies. And then they flip to the backup and then they can use that because you're just trying to extend the life of the Hubble uh, Space Telescope. So right. uh, we don't know what's going on, but it's not like it's it's about to die. They've got other good gyroscopes. They're just in this mode where they're trying to figure out, are we going to try to get back that other gyroscope to go up to three, or are we going to call it and say, okay, we're now in the end of the life of the mission where we're going to be in single gyro mode, which limits what we can do. And uh, when that one dies, we'll use the last one and then we're done. Uh, there's, a, there's a tweet from Wayne Hale, who was the space shuttle program manager, uh, for, for like four, 32 years at NASA, uh, sort of, uh, sort of a, a harsh tweet. To repair Hubble, you need a trained repair crew in low Earth orbit with a spacecraft uh, with tools, an airlock, robotic arm. We used to have some of those, but mm-hmm. not anymore. <sighs> Space shuttle. Yeah, and actually, I mentioned the the commercial crew and all of that. The what you know his his point there is that you you need. Uh, tools and an airlock and a robot arm and uh, duration for a couple of weeks. And, you know, commercial crew is not going to have that. And Orion doesn't really have that. And this, this was one of the things that we talked about, uh, not, not us on our podcast, but like in general, when the space shuttle was getting shut down was the planned replacements are capsules for you know, astronauts, but what they aren't is something that's capable of doing servicing. Now, I I think the way forward here, logically, 
is that um, servicing satellites on like the like Hubble on orbit is going to ultimately be the job of robots, right? It's going to be the job hmm. of a remote controlled probe, a remote controlled satellite that goes to the other satellite and does the servicing without human beings involved. I, I feel like that's there's already a lot of thought about this where they're talking about cleaning up space debris by creating uh, uh, satellites that go and clamp onto other satellites and then deorbit them. Um, the idea of doing repair missions by attaching, you know, by launching something that goes to the thing and attaches to it and fixes a problem. Uh, that's probably the way forward here. But it is true that, like, Hubble could keep... If we, if we still had a space shuttle, we could still... Uh, we could send it up and fix it and keep this many billions investment going in a way that James Webb, we won't be able to because it's at extreme distance. Right. Um, because it's in a Lagrange point. But Hubble's in low Earth orbit. We could fix it, but we have no technology to fix it at this point. And there isn't a magical, you know, uh, repair robot satellite that is being built either. So this is uh, it, also some of it is that Hubble's design is designed for. Uh, human servicing from the space shuttle. And since we don't have the space shuttle anymore, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. It's it's too bad, though. It's And there's no other way. You know, you would need to bring a spaceship to it and then let astronauts get out in shifts and work on it and bring materials. And, you know, w- we don't have anything on the drawing board to do that, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And it's something that when the shuttle went away, you know, we just, we just lost its ability. And it, there was a there's an article floating around. I'll have it in the show notes uh, back like like ten years ago or something. And no, 2004, so a long time ago. Uh, there was this discussion between Canada and the United States for like a, a robotic mission to do basically what you talked about, like you know, send send something up, deploy it from uh, the space station or from the shuttle or from something, and it could basically go up and, and do the work, but to your point, I mean the the work they did on Hubble, especially the gyroscope replacement and things like oh the doors don't shut, so you know they they shut them with a ratchet strap. Some of that stuff, just because the way robotics are now, uh, like you still need human input for right. You still need a human being to look at that door and be like oh it won't shut, but. I have a ratchet strap and I can, I can manage it. So, I mean, some of that stuff you can only do when you have human hands there, you know, even if, I mean, it's controlled remotely robotically, it still needs sort of a human mechanic for some of these things. So it'll be, uh, I'll be interested to see, you know, James Webb is sort of a different conversation because of location, like you said, but in the future, uh, you've got to think that satellites will be designed in a way to be serviced, like you said, robotically, because the Hubble's not, and we're kind of stuck with where it is now. But yeah. I would imagine this will be a conversation talk in the future. You know, next time there's something, you know, space telescope or whatever it is, the idea of longevity through repair, I think, has got to be part of the conversation. Yeah, I agree. The idea that like uh, James Webb and then W first coming after that, like mm-hmm. having them be repairable in some way. If you have a robotic repair, then you could send something out to where the James Webb telescope is, if and have it robotically repaired. Yeah. The also thing is is Hubble. We think a lot about how they the astronauts were like pulling out like 
pulling out cylinders and putting in new cylinders and stuff. There are other ways of fixing things. Like if Hubble lasts long enough, it's possible somebody could come up with a mission design that attached something to Hubble that did the you know positioning for it basically that it would turn off its gyros or it would get aided by an external something and there are people who have you know ideas written on the back of cocktail napkins about mm-hmm. this sort of thing but like you, you could do that the the challenge with it is it is old tech it's all going to start dying uh you can't replace it all and what's the cost of it versus the cost of like should we be should we be funding a hubble repair mission using a robot that hasn't been designed yet or an add-on that we have to get up there or should we spend that money to get w first Right. launched and, and at some point you do have to kind of call it but i think repairability in space we talk about this a lot about repairability in our electronics here on earth that used to be the computers were very repairable and now they're so miniaturized and um, attached in a, such a small amount of space especially things like smartphones that you can't they're not as repairable as as they used to be and that makes them disposable in a lot of cases which means that there's more waste in space you really need to not waste anything because it's so hard to get them up there so um, thinking about repairability you know, I would I would love it if we get to that point where uh, because I don't think we're there now, and and somebody who's involved in these projects can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's not like these these devices get designed with a repair mission standard in mind, right? right. And and maybe we need to get there where there's a standard kind of uh, satellite that is a repair satellite that can do this sort of work. Um, I've seen things about that, like I said, about space debris too, about about uh, a satellite that goes around and basically attaches little deorbiting things to space debris and so that they can be brought down instead of continuing to float around. But having a repair, having a doctor for this stuff that floats <laughs> around out there um, so that we, we can have, we can repair this stuff instead of uh, just having it be a one shot. Because Hubble, yeah, Hubble would have been nothing and done almost no science. Yeah, uh, it would have done some, but almost none, if uh, if it hadn't been repairable by the space shuttle, and then it was repaired many, many times, and here we are, decades later, and we're still using it and get, getting great science out of it. That seems like a lesson should be learned there, and because we don't have the shuttle anymore, we have to find another way. On the topic of uh, spacecraft troubles, we talk about mm-hmm. we talk about curiosity. So we spoke a lot about curiosity design with Emily Lakdawalla a couple months ago with her new book. And yep. uh, that actually came very much in handy when preparing for this topic. Like, oh, yeah, I know how, kind of how this works. So the Curiosity computer has uh, basically side A and side B. So it's like a redundant system. They can switch over to backup. The The rule is, you know, two is one and one is none. So that, that works with yeah. uh, all, all sorts of things. That's uh, why Curiosity has these two computers. So it launched using uh, side A. But there was a problem in 2013 that she, she writes about in the book, and they switched to side B, and that's mm-hmm. where they've been since. But in the meantime, they got side A working again, which is good because now uh, side B is causing problems. There's trouble uploading data that's stored in memory, and so they've now been able to go back to the original side that had faults before, but they're now working around them. And... Uh, you had a question of, do you know, do they try turning it off and back on again? You know, maybe got I mean, bl- bl- <laughs> our standard troubleshooting technique, right? Is like, let's just power cycle this baby and see what they do. <laughs> I am fascinated by the computer stuff on on all this stuff. Obviously, the the idea that they try to build in redundancies, like how do you look? 
I go away from home for two days and things in my house break. <laughs> and my family calls me and says, how does this work, right? Why doesn't it work anymore? And and I say, oh, my God, I don't know. I'm going to have to... Uh, I'm going to have to go do lots of stuff when I get home and it's just going to be broken until I get back. And I think about sending something to space and like literally you can't touch it. All you can do is build in that it's some part of it stays alive and you can turn the other things on and off. And it is super complicated stuff. It's fascinating to me. Um, but it's great that th- this is one of those examples where two is one and one is none. You've got two computers. Computer A uh, is working weirdly. So you switch to computer B. You fix computer A. Then computer B wor- works weirdly and you're like, aha, we'll switch back to computer A. And as long as you can keep doing that, you can stay in business. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So it seems like the, that NASA and JPL are confident, as the word they use, the word yeah. Stephen Lee uses, that they'll be back at full operations. Um, they're going to... Um, they do hope to be back on side B uh, at some point if they can get that uh, get workarounds put in place because it is it seems to be a little more capable than side A at this point. But uh, so yeah, they're just they they have the ability to move from one to the other, and that is uh, that has come in handy yet again. Yeah, that's good. And then meanwhile, we wait to hear from uh, Opportunity, which we haven't heard from. So there's you know there's trouble with the rovers on Mars right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a rough planet, turns They've out. They've been there a long time, too, yeah. Exactly, without any maintenance, right? Only remote uh, remote issues with the computers, but we can't send a mechanic up there, so. That is true. Yeah, let's talk about um, moons. We did the moon draft here. We love moons. Liftoff loves moons. We do, we do love moons. Have moons no, are great. No shame in that. No, moons are great, but you know what? what's better, Stephen? You know what's better than moons? Exomoons. Exomoons. That's right. Exomoons. If you have exoplanets, right, you got to have exomoons. But we've never observed something we know is an exomoon, and that may be changing. Uh, So there's Kepler-1625b. This is a one of the planets, exoplanets found in the Kepler survey. It's about the size of Jupiter. It's orbiting around a star about 8,000 light years away from our solar system. Um, it's about as far away from its star as Earth is from the sun, but the star is at the end of its life on the main sequence. So it's slowly evolving into a red giant. Um, so it's it's a much older star than ours. Um, but something about the profile of Kepler-1625b is suspicious. There's... They, they they've done a lot of profiling for exoplanets like they look at the they look at the charts and they're like you don't you seem like an outlier there's something wrong here we need to dive into the data its stats were a little bit weird as if something else was going on and if you're doing a lot of this really you know very detailed calculations for these exoplanets you're looking for any sign maybe it's a, a signal in the noise of another planet uh, and so you want to you want to study the data and see is there anything that's out of line here that we could look at closely? And they thought there was, so they took the Hubble Space Telescope. Hey, there it is, and they wanted to use it as to get a second opinion about what what this thing was, and if there was anything going on there because they just had the Kepler data, and um, and they know they, they've calculated based on the Kepler data like when what its orbit time is and that means they know more or less when it's going to transit across the face of the star because that's how kepler finds exoplanets is that the planet goes in front of the star that it's orbiting around and we see a dip in the light 
a minute dip in the light from that star, and we know that their part of its face is obscured by a planet. That's how we find exoplanets. Mo that's the most common way we find exoplanets. So they point Hubble at it, waiting for the transit, and the transit begins early, earlier than their calculations. This is one of the reasons that it's so suspicious. 78 minutes early. And then after it finishes its transit, there's another little blip in the light a few hours after the planet has finished its transit. And they do the calculations and they're like, well, what would be causing this? This is what they do. And they say, these observations are consistent with this planet having a moon. A moon, now keep in mind, this planet's the size of Jupiter. It's consistent with a moon the size of Neptune. <laughs> that is a big moon. That is a really big moon. Although, to be fair, <laughs> it's a big moon around a big planet. So much so that, and this is really interesting, the ratio of the sizes would roughly be the same as the ratio of the size of the Earth and the Moon. You know, the, now that, that's a ratio that is far greater than anything else in our solar system. The Earth-Moon size ratio, the, the, that is a big moon for a small planet with the Earth and the Moon. But this would be like that. So that in that way, even at large scale, it's kind of like the Earth and the Moon, except huge planet, huge moon. They don't know 100% that this is true. They think that they're fairly confident, but definitely with these studies, you see other people who are saying this would be exciting if it's true, but it could be other things. We don't really know. Um, they're going to do, they could get this. Uh, they say it's very confirmable, but they have to wait until May of next year when the next transit happens, because this is obviously happening, you know, basically once a, a year of that planet, but it's not not that far off from once a year for us. So in May of 2019, the next transit will come. They will be watching, ideally with Hubble, if Hubble is still able to point there and do this measurement, which it should be in some form. They uh, they think that they can confirm this. Uh, so so ExoMoon, like again, it's just in our lifetimes we have gone from the idea that maybe eventually one day we will be able to see whether there are planets around other stars to the point where we have seen thousands of planets around other stars and we talk about measuring their atmospheres and things like that maybe in the future and here we are where we're probably going to get in the near future if not this then something else the first confirmed moon orbiting around a planet around another star it's pretty crazy it's, it's real crazy <laughs> yeah but, but yeah i mean, I it, mean it, just, it makes sense that it would follow it's right size, it's the size of neptune i mean there's a reason you can see it it's like it's really big probably all of these exoplanets that we've been measuring you know most of them or all of them many 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 of them have moons but you have to see them right like we knew that stars probably had planets around them but you gotta see them and we've gotten to that point so that's also i just like the idea that there's this system where there's a giant jupiter-like planet with a neptune orbiting around it that's just that's that's a lot of mass in a small amount of space mm -hmm. i think this may be like uh like the planets were too that now they sort of know what they're looking for that that may we may see more of these you know pop up here before too long. right because presumably if you've got planets transiting stars you probably can see their moons if you're looking for them right because the moons can't stray too far away so you might want to start looking at anything that's got a transit that's off by a little bit from your estimations of when it should be that it varies a little or if there's a little following or leading dip in the uh in the starlight and uh presumably if you looked at it enough times you might even be able to figure out what the uh what the lunar orbit is depending on its position and right. if 
So there's lots more to be done here, but pretty cool. Exomoons. So what's better than moons? Exomoons. Exomoons. I think that does it for this fortnight. Ooh, yeah, that was a lot. We had a lot to cover, more than we thought, right? Then the, suddenly the Hubble has a problem and there's a SpaceX launch and suddenly, you know, that's the thing about uh, talking about space. As I said from the beginning, we were worried that there would not be enough to talk about on this podcast. It's not a problem. Not, 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 a, problem. not a problem. If you want to find links and stuff uh, about the topics we've discussed this week, head over to the website relay.fm slash liftoff slash 82 while you're on that webpage, there are a couple of things you could do. You could send us an email with feedback. You could find our Tumblr where we post things in between episodes. And you can find links to our Twitter handles. So Jason is on Twitter at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L. You can find me there as I-S-M-H. As a reminder, our next episode will be about Apollo 7, about the first crewed mission of the Apollo program. And uh, spoiler alert, they all got pretty cranky. <laughs> well, yeah. We'll get into that, uh, and we'll be back with a sort of uh, normal uh, news and and roundup sort of episode uh, two weeks after that. So keep an eye out for that Apollo 7 episode, and until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.